Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by my fellow co-founder and host of LPTV's The Breakdown, back this fall, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Hey, Reed. And also on the show today is our resident freedom fighter, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and president of Viking Strategies, Trigvi Olson. Trigvi, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment and thank all of our incredibly loyal listeners and Lincoln Project followers out there. This past week, the podcast crossed the threshold of 6 million downloads since our relaunch wow. this past February. Get out of here. So I just want to say thank you to everybody for that. That is an incredible number. I am humbled, flattered beyond any true conception. So thank you to everybody. And let me make a pitch. You know, if you're out there listening, tell one of your friends, tell two of your friends, and let's jack that number even more so the good word is spread. All right, guys, so let's get to work here. So I want to talk about Republicans and the sort of chaos theory of life that they've now ascribed to, including threatening to block the raising of the national debt ceiling, as well as the total lack of leadership that we're seeing from Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott in Texas and Florida, respectively. But first, we have to talk, I think, about Afghanistan, which for those who are watching the news or reading the news, we're seeing scenes out of Kabul and other places there, reminiscent of you know South Vietnam in 1975 and other places. And just before we started this recording, folks, we listened to President Joe Biden give remarks on why he decided to continue the drawdown that the Trump administration had begun. And Rick, and I want to go to you first. What I thought was a pretty stark and candid illustration of how Joe Biden sees not only the world, but also sees Afghanistan and its place in America's foreign policy. Right. And he sees it as not having a place in our foreign policy. That's the honest, like no bullshit answer. He views it as the counterterrorism mission, which is, you know, that was our initial, initial way back 20 years ago in the dawn of time idea of where and how we would manage our roles and missions there. And this was obviously a difficult decision for him, a painful decision for him. But I think it speaks more to the current Republican Party that these same people who were screaming bloody murder, if you elect Joe Biden, we're staying the forever war in Afghanistan. Trump will be the one to get us out of Afghanistan. And now today they are losing their minds and saying, Joe Biden sides with the Taliban. Taliban Joe, he's with the enemy. It really tells you a lot about how far that so-called party has fallen. It is something that on the left and the right, there were always going to be pressures on Biden to leave Afghanistan. And on the left, those pressures are sort of generic. But on the right, those pressures are opportunistic and very directed and run by a bunch of very smart people who know exactly what they're doing. And it's not good. So Trigby, watching the president's speech, I was struck by, as Rick noted, the idea that 
After 20 years, he said, one, that it was his decision, that he wasn't going to go back on the decision, and that as president of the United States, as Harry Truman said long before him, the buck stopped with him. When's the last time in your memory an American president delivered that sort of cold reality to the American people? Because I feel like it's been a long time. I mean, given the images that we're seeing, right, probably the last time would have to be George W. Bush in the post 9-11 immediate aftermath. You know, it was leadership on Biden's part to stand up there and say, this isn't good, but I stand by it. I made the decision. The buck stops with me. I also think, though, the politics of it in the U.S. is going to be both sides trying to cast blame on the other. But I think what we need to look at is, in terms of drawing honest conclusions about where fault lies, is what are some of our allies who are also vested in this saying? And one of the more interesting quotes that I saw just in the last maybe 24 hours or less was the defense minister of the UK, Ben Wallace, coming out and saying, you know, the die for this was cast with Trump in Doha and Biden really didn't have a choice. So I think that's kind of one of the important things that we have to look at as we're trying to digest this. Rick and I were talking before we started, you know, these are long arc things and we're not going to really know all the ramifications for a decade or more. But for you know anybody who has daughters, read you and I have daughters that age, man, some of what you're hearing happening already out of Afghanistan to young girls as a parent of a girl that age, two girls that age, it just makes your skin boil. When you say those things, Trigby, you're absolutely right. The issue, I think probably for a lot of folks, and I say this not as an excuse, but probably as a cold reality, is that in the 20 years of two wars, most individual Americans, other than watching back in the mid-2000s and the late 2000s, seeing the scroll of names of men and women and service members who had died on Sunday shows, did not have to change their daily lives one iota. There were no victory gardens. There were no rations. There were no bond drives. There wasn't a mass mobilization to take these things on. And so now at the end, you know, maybe people are looking up and going, what's going on? What's happening? And I think you're right that what we're going to see are the individual atrocities and individual horror shows that none of us could imagine happening to our own children. And it will be harder and harder for us to do anything about it because as the president said, if we just wait another year, if we just wait another five years, just wait another 10 years, it'll be better. But the place didn't get called the graveyard of empires because it was a place that wanted to blossom with democracy. I think the other thing is, and this was true of Benghazi, and it was true with decisions all presidents have to make, but most Americans, fortunately, don't ever have to make, is decisions where there are no good answers, and there are lives at stake no matter which decision you make. And there are going to be people who pay for that. And Biden deserves credit for standing up and saying, I made the decision, I owe in the decision. And that is not something that we ever saw with the previous administration. So say what you want about the decision, but at least we had a president who was standing up and making that decision and saying, I own it. And I mean, he did reference in his remarks that going back to even when he was vice president under Barack Obama, that there were times when he said, we should not send further troops there. We should draw down. We should find a way out. And so this is not an unusual sort of position for him vis-a-vis -vis where he thought we should be overseas. Obviously, I believe he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is in the United States Senate. 
So he's been working on these things for a long time. He's mentioned he'd been to Afghanistan four times. And, you know, not to make light of this, but for all my Trekkie fans out there, remember Star Trek II, the Kobayashi Maru, there's a no-win situation. Afghanistan was probably always a no-win situation. When the mission went from dismantling Al-Qaeda to destroying the Taliban to trying to rebuild a country with not one tradition of successful centralized government since God knows when, you know, at that point, we had put ourselves collectively on a path that probably never had a really terrific outcome. You know, from the time that the Soviets left in 1989 until the time that we invaded in 2001, it was 12 years. We were just there 20. I mean, think about that, that there was a lack of sustained combat in that country for a little more than a decade with a decade on one end and 20 years on the other. You know, you look back at all the nerdy history books that I read and, you know, there's the 30 years war and the 50 years war. You know, someday some historian might call this the Afghans 30 or 40 year war. You know, there was a break in the middle, but even then they were fighting each other. So this has been just one protracted slow motion from the outside brutal conflict that will now recapitulate itself in a different way. Because I assume that just because the Taliban, quote unquote, runs the country does not mean that some of these warlords who have gotten fat and happy in the time of American involvement are not going to have their say when it comes to their you know, patch of land. I think the other thing is, you know, so the Taliban, one, they have hardened fighters, right? Because that's what they've been doing. I mean, it's a little bit like the viral video of the Oklahoma football player who was being the big, tough football player, and he happened to pick on a little guy who was an MMA fighter, and it didn't end very well for the football guy. The other thing is, you know, if you were a young woman who was 10 when 9-11 happened, you're 29 now, and you've had the opportunity to go to school. You've had a lot of opportunities. How much Afghanistan has changed during that period where there was opportunities that were different than when the Taliban was in control during that 12-year period, I don't think that can be discounted either. And I'm not trying to be optimistic about the fate of how Afghanistan is going to turn out, but they're not returning to the same country that they had during the 12 years when al-Qaeda was festering itself there. Most Americans don't have to go and see those kinds of places. And having been to places like that where fear rules, Fear is the driver of illiberalism and autocracy, and the Taliban is about as bad as it gets, along with the North Koreans. That's how afraid those people are. And one of the things that's not being talked about, and I'm not a military strategist either, but I do think part of the reason why the Afghan military fell so fast may just be that their level of fear of the average Afghani in the military of how brutal the Taliban could be might be better to say, you know what, I'm not going to fight because if I do fight, I may not win. Well, and I want to turn the conversation about Afghanistan to domestic politics in a sec, but that is one thing just to close out on President Biden's speech that I thought Rick was pretty stark. He said, we trained the Afghan army, we equipped the Afghan army, we paid the Afghan army. And when the time came, they had to choose, as Trigvi said, to fight or not to fight. And they ultimately chose not to fight. Now, could I blame them, you know, based on what on Trigby's construction? I'm not sure that I can or would, because certainly I can't even imagine a situation like that. 
I think this is a painful reality about the phrase nation building. If you're going to nation build, you have to do it in the model of Japan, Germany, and South Korea. And by Germany, I mean NATO writ large. And Trick can tell you this. He knows this much better than anybody. The stabilizing role of the United States presence in Europe was what contributed to a very, very, very long, successful run of stability and prosperity for Europe at a cost to the U.S., put all Trump's bleating about it aside, at a cost to the U.S. that was honestly de minimis when you work it out over time, given the trade-off. And, you know, we didn't have the stomach or the patience or the belief that it was a strategic benefit to us to leave a presence in Afghanistan fight the fight that had to be fought against the ISI backing the Taliban and buckle down on it. But we didn't do that. And it's going to be a counterfactual for a long time. What if we'd stayed? I think the thing is, you know, and I I said this to people around the world, and it was cliche during the George W. Bush years when the freedom agenda was taking place. You know, we're exporting democracy. And to Rick's point, we didn't export democracy to Germany after World War II. The Germans built their own democracy. We may have provided them space and inspiration, but the Germans built it. And that's true of the Lithuanians or the Latvians or, you know, anywhere that democracy has grown. Ultimately, every society chooses, are you going to determine governance at the ballot box or on the streets? And what you're seeing in Afghanistan is it's decided on the streets out of fear of the Taliban. And the other side didn't fight back because they had no faith in what they were supposed to be fighting for. They may have had the wherewithal, but they didn't have faith in each other. So let's talk about this in the context of here in the U.S. So as Biden noted in his speech, this was a plan that Trump put in place last year. This is something where Mike Pompeo went to Afghanistan and stood next to a Taliban leader. They released 5,000 Taliban prisoners of war, including the guy who's now going to be the leader of Afghanistan. And so three weeks ago, I think Trump gave a speech in which he said, I started this, I started this, I started this. As we're recording this, and probably when this drops, Trump will be doing another rally where I guarantee you he will say, I started it, but it never would have been as bad if I was president. Which, of course, I really believe this, guys. I believe that when he's watching and he is watching those scenes of chaos in Kabul and other places, it gives him some sort of like primal satisfaction that he loves it. It's practically the only thing in life that gives him pleasure is causing chaos. And look, it also says a lot. They're trying to frame this as like Biden has betrayed America in some way or that he's on the wrong side of history. This guy wanted the Taliban. The people now he's going to claim are the worst people in the world. He wanted to bring them in private to Camp David so he could give them Afghanistan on a platter before the election. And like all things in the world, if you think that you found the shittiest bottom of Trump's behavior, you never have. And I promise you we're going to see some grotesque, horrifying behaviors on his part in the coming weeks. So, Trigby, let me ask you this. A lot of the biggest Republican members of the Trump faction, which is, let's be clear, the majority of the party, at least in its leadership ranks, you know, said, get out of the forever war. These aren't our fights. Let's get out. Now they're obviously taking their cheap political shots at Biden, which no one should be surprised at. Let's say it had been a Republican president. Democrats would be doing the same thing. It is our political nature now that even things that 
like national security, which once seemed to be sacrosanct as far as members of the opposing party did their best not to be terribly critical when something was going on. Those gloves are off. But what about, you know, we had a conversation with a friend of ours a few weeks ago who said that if you watch Fox News, that they're actively trying to separate the officer corps from enlisted men and women because there's a radicalization issue within the enlisted ranks. Many of those men and women have probably served multiple tours over there. How does it play where they very well might be happy it's over, that they served, maybe they were scarred physically, emotionally, maybe they lost a limb, maybe they lost their friends, their buddies. But to them, this was like the right thing to do. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think now we're so locked into a polarized thing that if you're a Trump guy, a Republican veteran, it was screwed up because Trump said it was? Did Biden stab the U.S. soldier in the back? There will be attempts to message it that way, no doubt. I mean, I think that will be a constant refrain. And I think on some of the real fringe, more radicalized parts of the right, they will try and use it to try and radicalize others, right? Like your buddy died in vain and you should be really angry that Biden and the so-called communist left, you know, did this to him. You know, you've had four administrations that have been involved in Afghan policy, two Republican, two Democrat. But yeah, I mean, I think that will be a regular message. And, you know, as one of the things in the authoritarian playbook, what did you have to build the SA? You had the steel helmets. Oh, you were all betrayed after the war. You know, your government took the deal at Versailles and you all got fucked for it. And you're going to hear that, I think, because, look, it is important for the Trump side, the authoritarian side, to radicalize American soldiers, enlisted folks. It's important to them. It's important because their agenda is not, let's have a civic discourse about the policies of Afghanistan. It's, let's find the guy who's going to do the craziest fucking shit we need him to do. I hate playing into that cliche, but it has the disadvantage of being a painful truth in how dark and cynical these people are about their political ends. Let's never forget Steve Bannon. He's a Leninist. He said it himself. He's playing out a very dark thing here. And they will try to say to soldiers, Biden betrayed you. And they'll form these AstroTurf groups, you know, American veterans for Afghan security or whatever the hell it is. And they will play a very, very dark game. Well, think about how you make somebody an extremist from a psychological standpoint, right? I talk about this a lot. Cognitive distress. My buddy died in Afghanistan for nothing. And then the next thing, cognitive simplicity, it's Biden's fault. You drill that in enough, people become overconfident in that and eventually intolerant. Then they're open to be radicalized. And to Rick's point, then you start giving people networks through which to be a part of that. I mean, I do think that's something that we have to be far more cognizant of around all kinds of events that are happening in the United States today. How do we stem that before it grows? Because that is how people end up becoming extremists, and you end up with two extremist camps that create even more extremism. And on the right, there's a whole outrage complex that's built literally around using those four factors highly effectively to create people who are extremists. Because it's a good business model, quite frankly. Extremists tune into television, listen to talk radio, etc. They want to hear the next outrage. You know, speaking of business models, before we talk about the rest of the cascading chaos theory that is today's Republican Party, You've noticed that the media is positively giddy about these images. It now helps them fit the traditional partisan box back into their coverage, right? Giving all these people who have been duplicitous and feckless in their own rights for years, if not decades, 
you know, somehow equal footing with people who had to actually make a hard decision. And Biden did. And these things are unfolding in real time. We will not know, as Trigby, I think you said for years or decades, whether or not it was the right decision or the wrong decision or the decision that had to be made, whether it was right or wrong. But now it seems like the media, it looks like they've been waiting for something to just like beat the hell out of Biden for so they could say that they were being even handed. And now they're taking the, you know, to full effect. Yes, the D.C. bipartisan fairness complex is sort of the weird sister of the outrage complex. And there's an outrage complex on the left and an outrage complex on the right. You're right, Reed. They want to be in that simple frame that everybody understands, bad Republican, good Democrat, good Democrat, bad Republican, whatever the meat of that issue is that day. And they're so comfortable with it. It makes the world seem explicable. It makes the world seem understandable. They're like, oh, I get this. This is what I grew up with. This makes sense. I think the other thing with the media on this, right, there's a lot of forces at play. You have the foreign policy world and the media foreign policy world and just the media world. And then you have the whole human rights play, right, that plays on the left. And then you've got the whole politics of this for right-wing media, we're going to blame Biden. It's kind of a no-win. And that's part of the challenge of the decision for anybody who is going to be in the White House at the time that a decision was going to have to be made one way or the other. And the other thing is, you know, we don't know how it would play out in an alternative scenario. Let's say Biden had reversed things and, you know, he had to bring more troops in, which I think, based on what I've read at least, they would have had to do to keep things afloat. You know, what if you have a situation like Reagan had in Lebanon, right, where a bunch of Americans get killed suddenly, right? It's impossible to know. Yeah, I mean, Trigger, that's a great counterfactual because think about what the Republicans would be doing right this minute. If Joe Biden woke up yesterday and said, fuck this, I'm not going to let these son of a bitches behead women in the street. We're going to go back in there. We're going to knock the living shit out of their supply lines. We're going to tell Pakistan if they fuck around with us one more minute, the next set of fucking JDAMs go through the roof of the ISA headquarters. We're done. And he redeployed forces into Afghanistan. They would be out there right now screaming bloody fucking murder. No American soldier must die for a single Afghan girl. Ah! They would do the entire performative bullshit show that they always do. And it would just be a perfect illustration of just how bankrupt their political philosophy has become. It is about the daily owning of the libs. It's not about anything else. Again, Biden had a no-win choice. And we don't know how the alternative works out in the same way that, quite frankly, originally, you know, George W. Bush, he had a hard choice, too. It isn't like the Bush administration didn't understand that, you know, major powers that had gone into Afghanistan and ended up in protracted engagements. You know, the Russians, I mean, it was the Soviet Union, right? Second most powerful military in the world, the British. But he had no choice but to do that because of Al-Qaeda. But then it becomes a question, you know, mission creep works its way in. But as far as the media goes, no matter what choice Biden made, there were going to be pitfalls to it. And the best part for me watching it was at least he stood up and owned it. And we have had a lot of presidents who haven't really tried to own it. They've tried to have it both ways. You got to give Biden credit for that. So let's move on. Speaking of craven political plays, this week, a bunch of Republican senators sent a group letter to the American people. And the American people love group letters from groups of senators. And so now the gist of it, folks, is that the Republican members of the United States Senate will not vote to increase the debt limit, which is the amount of money that the federal government is allowed to borrow to continue its operations until and unless 
the Biden administration and Democrats in both the House and Senate reduce the amount of these spending packages. Now, just so we're clear, and I had Rob, our producers, look this up, the deficit increased under Donald Trump $7.8 trillion. A lot of that had to do with COVID relief, right, that Republicans happily voted for, but also because of the 2018 tax cut and jobs plan or whatever the hell they called it, where, you know, the dying gasp of supply side economics, where they're like, we're going to cut taxes for all these high net worth individuals and money will somehow fall from the sky, which of course it did not and will not do. And so now, you know, Rick, as you think about this, Republicans were once, and I'm going to put this in this way, like they were supposed to be the party of fiscal responsibility. I would say that it never really was, even when we were there. No, it was all bullshit. Every bit of it was a lie. Right. And so, I mean, if you go back to when Reagan became president in 1981, the top marginal tax rate in this country was 70%, 70%. He reduced it to 50%. And so you could make an argument in the context of a marginal tax rate that high that when you slashed it by one fifth, that a whole bunch of money that had not previously been in the market economy suddenly flowed into it. But what I think has happened is now that the tax cut piece has become dogma. You mix it with the shrink government to the size of something where you can kill it in a bathtub. And now we know that like no Republican's going to vote for any spending cut ever. But now, to continue this chaos theory idea, they are all willing to put the American dollar bond rating, the American government's bond rating, at risk to make a political point that they never would have made themselves. It's exactly right, Reed. And I, I will say this. I wrote a story in my first book that stunned me almost beyond words. I have a friend who's a lobbyist who was in the room in McConnell's office during the drafting of the 2017 tax bill. And yes, I deeply oppose Trump. But in 2017, I kept looking for, is there a pathway where there's some kind of conservative policy victories we could achieve despite this fucking guy? Well, I called my friend and he said, hey, I can't talk right now. I'm literally at McConnell's office. I'm dealing with the, you know, the details in the tax bill. I'm like, so tell me there's some kind of middle class uplift in this thing, man. And he laughed and he says, dude, I work for the hedge fund guys. Fuck, I don't care. And even me, you know, as a free market guy, I was like, oh, fuck, we're being taken for a total ride here. And yeah, McConnell made his constituency in the financial services industry extremely happy. It worked out very well for them. They have made trillions of dollars. They've made trillions of dollars. That wasn't a conservative thing. We now have Republicans out every day saying, oh, we have to tell businesses how to do their work. We're going to tell big tech what it can and can't do. We're going to tell local companies if they can demand vaccination of their employees. We're going to do all the things that the power of government being in our hands enables us to do. And it really is something that is a transformational moment of what was a party that claimed to be about fiscal responsibility, limited government, balanced budgets, constitutional adherence, freedom, all that stuff. And Trigby, remember that just to go back to Reagan and George H.W. Bush, they both raised taxes when it was a necessity because there was a time when fiscal responsibility didn't just mean cutting spending, but also that if you were going to pay for things, you needed money to pay for them. You know, if the Republican Party was Matt Gates embodied, you know, it would be spending on dad's black card and assuming that the bill would never come due and being happy to lay it off on someone else. I think with this story, 46 Republicans have said 
they are not going to vote to increase the debt ceiling. The last time this happened was 2011 when Eric Cantor and a bunch of the Tea Party Republicans, we were in technical default for four days. How that sovereign risk look? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I went back and looked up the numbers. So in 2007, to ensure U.S. debt was 25 basis points, after 2011, it's up to 55 to 75 basis points, right? So that works its way through the whole system. But, you know, I had a Twitter rant about this a while back, maybe a month ago, that there was sovereign political risk in the U.S. that people are missing. And literally, the U.S., defaulting on its debt, we benefit from being the last refuge for currency. And if the U.S. government defaults, it has the potential to tank the entire global economy. And after I put out that tweet rant and Fitch Rating Service, I was just lucky, Fitch Rating Service happened to come out and say that there was political risk in the U.S. market the same day. I had people reaching out to me and I up until recently didn't tweet often. And then when Rick Wilson retweets my tweets, suddenly I have all kinds of people. I had all these people reaching out saying, you know, from Wall Street, who are you? And this is spot on. I mean, I don't know how you raise the debt ceiling if you have 46 senators who are refusing to do it. Well, let me tell you what actually happens. They pretend they're not going to raise the debt ceiling and they're going to start getting phone calls from people at hedge funds and their billionaire donors, and they're going to raise the debt ceiling. It's all a big show. It's all a line of bullshit. And they know perfectly well they're going to raise the debt ceiling. I think that's true, certainly, for like the McConnells of the world. But if it happens and our credit rating gets downgraded, and Fitch has already put us on the negative watch list, Standard & Poor's downgraded us after the last time. The reality is we lose our reserve currency status or it's called into question and is not as safe as it was. And U.S. Treasuries become an investment that's less safe than they were. There will be an increase in interest rates across all facets of the economy globally. And having that happen at a place where housing prices are going through the roof and you have inflation, right? You could see a spike in interest rates. You could see it rippling through the global economy really quickly. But let me just ask you this, Trigby, because I think the point you're talking about when we take out the nerdiness of debt ceilings and global economic ripples. The point is, is that these decisions driven by politics will ultimately cascade down to individual Americans who will see their housing prices go up, borrowing prices go up, food prices go up. They will be the ones who will suffer. There will be some massive fallout. Again, remember, we always talk about how we never think these things are going to happen and they keep freaking happening. Right. So, like, clearly they happen, right? And they happen more often than we think they're going to happen. And what will happen? The average American, not to get too populist on you here, will be left holding the bag. And, you know, some big financial institution that goes belly up because they got on the wrong side of something, it'll all become, you know, 46 assholes who decided that this was a good campaign idea. Look, maybe Mitt Romney believes that this is an important thing. And let's be clear it is fiscal responsibility in the government's reserve currency is an important thing. But the point is, is that they know they're ultimately going to fold on this. Because to your point, Rick, Citi's going to call, JP Morgan's going to call, Morgan Stanley's going to call, Back of Americans going to call and say, you're going to fix this goddamn thing and you're going to fix it right now. Right. But think about this. It won't be Josh Hawley. I mean, and that's the thing. I was surprised Mitt signed that. But that's the trap, right? 
Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, <laughs> they know that they don't have to break because Mitt will break and Pat Toomey will break, right? They'll be the ones who will end up having to be the big boys and cast the vote. And now they're tied to this, which is the problem with playing politics with something as important as the debt ceiling. And if you think about it, going all the way back to Bretton Woods, you want to talk about what makes America great? One of the things that makes America great is that we're the reserve currency of the world and we're the last refuge for capital. That's the foundation of what makes us great since World War II. I don't think a lot of Americans understand what the reserve currency means. Folks, it means that every big trade in the world at the end of the day is denominated in dollars. If you're making a deal, if you're in the Philippines buying oil from Bahrain, you're going to make that deal in a dollar-denominated currency. It makes the U.S. the center of the world economy, and that has had enormous benefits for us politically, economically, militarily, strategically for generations. I mean, part of why folks like Steve Bannon would love to have the economy crash, would love to have the economic chaos, is they want to reset that. They believe that America is a force that needs to be set into a state of pure chaos as often and as deeply as possible. And that's why there are people who think that this is a game that's worth playing. Well, and we have to assume that the Russians are happy about this stuff, right? Anything that's going to destabilize internal political institutions is something that they're for. You know, look, Romney might have done this because he said it helps me and, you know, keep my conservative bona fides, right? Toomey and Portman did it, as you said, Trevi, because they know they're going to ultimately go for it because they're not crazy, right? They're not fire eaters. And they're not running for re-election. And they're not running for re-election, so they can flip. But the point is, is that there are a lot of these people willing to make these threats. And with every threat and every action, you know, as Newton taught us, there'll be an equal and opposite reaction from someplace. The point is, is that these are all short-term political tactics that potentially have very bad short and long-term effects on actual American human beings. And once again, we're seeing that these guys just don't give a shit about it. So speaking of people who don't give a shit about the people that they're supposed to represent, Rick, your governor, Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas continue to push back on mask mandates to keep schools safe, to do anything to mitigate the latest wave of the Delta variant of coronavirus. And you and I were talking on Lunch with Lincoln earlier today before we recorded this. This has very little to do with anything other than the fact that Greg Abbott already has two right-wing wackos running against him for the gubernatorial primary in Texas this coming March. And my assertion is also that Ron DeSantis is doing the same thing for a gubernatorial primary that will occur sometime a little more than a year from now in Florida. And you talk about how Bannon says, never let anybody get to your right. The problem is, is that that's an open-ended spectrum, right? There's no barrier. So how far will these guys go with this charade of individual liberty bullshit when they know that it is just because they're trying to avoid something bad happening to them politically because they both have aspirations beyond where they are? Right. Well, both of them, yeah, they're, pl they're both playing to the 2022 primary and the 2024 presidential primary. Because there's no species more ambitious and unfortunately common these days than a Republican senator or governor who thinks that Trump is going to drop dead of a heart attack on the golf course one day and leave them as the heir to MAGA. And in many, many of these cases, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, most assuredly, they are like every other politician. They are scared shitless of anybody that could cause a primary loss. They hate that idea so much. It defies imagination. 
and they see that this has become don't wear masks, don't get vaccinated has become whether they'll admit it or not, and they know it's wrong, the talking point of the Fox audience. And as we know that Ron DeSantis is the chosen one for Fox for 2024, they're both looking at these things entirely politically, which is why, you know, when we put up those ads this last week in Austin and Tallahassee, both of them got so pissed off. I mean, I, I got a call from somebody who's very close to DeSantis world this weekend who called me up and goes, I'm seeing that fucking commercial on TV in Florida. What the hell? He's like, hey, it's one thing to put it online, but ah, he was outraged. And I was like, mm, your tears sustain me. Tell me more. <laughs> what is it he thinks we do here? Right. <laughs> right. You play your games. We'll play ours. <laughs> yeah. So Trigby, in your experience, what comparison do you see as this takes a step for someone is finding new and different ways to exercise executive authority for their own personal benefit? It's classic illiberalism on some level, you know, from the international experience, though, <laughs> I find the wannabes kind of humorous because what they don't seem to get is the man was willing to hang Mike Pence. I'm pretty sure he'd be willing to politically hang Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott if they become any sort of threat to his vertical hold on the Republican Party. <laughs> and so all the wannabes kind of humor me a little bit. And Abbott, you know, I think Abbott, it's about he's really worried about being challenged from the right in Texas. They're so worried about their primaries. There will be far more base Republicans, activists, very conservative, Trumpy Republicans, I guess we could call them, in a primary that I have to worry about that good governance doesn't do me any good. That's the belief that they're both operating under, which is interesting because I would venture to say that if kids were going to school, the SEC was playing football, the economy was growing, and people weren't filling hospitals that they would be soaring into re-election or into their primaries with a pretty high approval rating that even the Trumpiest voter probably wouldn't go against. They wouldn't even have to do these things in the context of like mask mandates, not mask mandates, but just being good governors. But that's where we are now. And as I, I think I said to Rick earlier, I truly believe that both of these guys have rationalized this to the, well, if I don't do it this way, they're going to get somebody way worse. I truly believe that's how Abbott looks at himself in the mirror. If Alan West or Don Huffines beats me in a primary, one of those wackos is going to be in the governor's mansion, and then Texas will really be screwed. But these things don't exist in a vacuum. They don't exist on Twitter or on the governor's website or even in a school board meeting. Ultimately, there will be more people who get sick, including kids who are now apparently far more susceptible to getting sick from this Delta variant, and that that will come with corresponding economic fallout as even business owners. I was with some folks this weekend, some of which, you know, they run fairly sizable companies. And they said, we were going to bring everybody back into the office at Labor Day. And now we're not. And we're having to figure out how we're going to deal with that. So you take that. Now that building, which let's say it for argument's sake, you know, was 100 people in that office space. That's 100 people buying coffee downstairs, 100 people buying lunch, 100 people buying snacks, you know, walking around, maybe having a drink after work, whatever it is. All of that stuff cascades down. And the idea that somehow, because they believe they can will it, that we won't see a repeat of the economic catastrophe that we saw last year, because I, I think we did one shutdown, and I don't think we're ever going to do that again. But to say that people aren't going to self-regulate their public exposure seems to be defying human nature. I think one of the keys with all of this, though, and I was just back home for my class reunion. I won't say the number, but it's a lot in western Wisconsin. 
And I think one of the keys to this is we need to figure out ways, and and some of this is on corporate America, right? Like if the NCAA were to say, you want to go to a UT game, you need to be vaccinated. If the NFL were to say, you want to go to Lambeau Field, you need to be vaccinated. There would be a whole lot of people getting vaccinated pretty fast. And I just think there's going to have to be pressure in those ways put on. And I know from being back at that class reunion, there'd probably be blowback on it. But I also think that kind of takes it out of the political. And one of the things about autocratic actors and the liberal actors, it's why Vladimir Putin's always playing hockey and scoring a million goals against Olympic athletes, right? Autocrats want to put themselves at the middle of culture. And so that's why they invest themselves into all of this stuff. The best answer is going to be you want to go to a mass gathering, you have a choice. You either are vaccinated or you wear a mask or you don't go. And until that happens, I think people will be slow. That said, if the University of Alabama were to say you got to be vaccinated, help people get vaccinated in a hurry there. Well, and I mean, I can only assume that as conservative a Republican as Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama, as I've noted on the program before, has said it's just common sense. She knows that like if Alabama or Auburn has to forfeit an SEC conference game or frankly any game because there's too many infections on the team and they can't field one and the SEC commissioner's already said you're going to forfeit that, like there will be hell to pay. Oh, she will take a massive political hit in that state. Massive. As will Mike DeWine in Ohio and any governor who has a Big Ten football team or an SEC football team, Big 12, wherever it is. And I hate to reduce this to football, but Trigvi, you're right. I mean, Rick, as you've said before, like this is a culture war. Republicans fight a culture war because they know culture wars have electoral outcomes. In the fall, in the United States, college and professional football are the secular religions for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans. And they want it back. And they want it back the way they know it. Yeah. And I think we're very close now to... You know, the reality is going to start kicking in. Florida has basically a quarter or more of all the COVID cases in the country right now. And you can't just say, oh, well, we'll just do Regeneron if you get sick. It doesn't work that way. We know what works. Mass vaccination works. This governor failed to encourage vaccinations at a sufficient rate and tempo. And he's going to pay a political price for it down the road. Yeah, I think all these guys, they may be in the right place in the short run. But these guys all have presidential ambitions. I don't think it's the right place in the wrong run. I remember when I worked for John McCain many, many years ago in spring of 2007, and he and Teddy Kennedy and then President George W. Bush were close to an immigration deal. I think it was May of that year. And we're sitting in the campaign headquarters across the river from the Capitol, sort of scratching our heads and being like, all right, well, this is really good policy, probably ends the campaign. And McCain said, if it ends the campaign, it ends the campaign. We'll get it done. That was the price he was willing to pay. Now, it didn't get done, but that was something that he was willing to do You know, when the time came. And I think you know, to bring it back around, I think that that's what we saw Biden do today as president of the United States is take responsibility and say, I had to make a call. I had to make a call. I made the call. These are not easy jobs. The presidency of the United States is the single probably most difficult and emotional, psychologically taxing job that humanity has ever created, right? It's not working in a coal mine, right? It's not working on an oil rig. Day in and day out, you have to make actual decisions that will have effects on other human beings' lives. And there's very few other human beings that have that 
responsibility, that awesome responsibility on a daily basis. But the people in this country that we elect have those things. Joe Biden made a choice. People will suffer for it, but he's standing behind it. Guys like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott are making those choices and they will blame it on others because that is where, in my mind, we are as a country. We have one small D Democratic Party left in this country. It's the big D Democratic Party and one proto-authoritarian movement that doesn't give two shits about anybody other than themselves. So on that chipper note, Trigvi, where can we find you online? You can find me uh, on Twitter at Trigve, T-R-Y-G-V-E, Olson, O-L-S-O-N. And Rick, as always, where can we find you? At the Rick Wilson on Twitter and elsewhere. All right. And guys, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with us a little bit longer than we normally go today. For some reason, when, when Rick and I get Trigvy on the horn here, we just talk and talk and talk. But we started in Kabul and we ended up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So we covered a lot of ground. As I said, I want to say thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. Six million downloads is an incredible achievement. It is all about you guys. If you have a friend who's interested in hearing about what we see as this country's future politically, the good, the bad, and the ugly, please let them know. We'd love to get more of your questions. Maya and I loved doing the viewer question show last week. Got great response from it. We'll do it again soon. With that, I want to say thanks to Trigby and thanks to Rick, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.